Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Kimberly Atkins. Kimberly works for the Boston Globe, covering national politics, and she is an MSNBC contributor. She is also a lawyer, or as she says on her Twitter profile, a recovering lawyer. She's one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter, where you can find her at Kimberly E. Atkins. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Hi, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. So I know that you have been talking a lot about post-election litigation, and there is, as we were just discussing, an elephant in the room. At the time that we're recording this episode, we're still waiting on the Supreme Court's response to a lawsuit that was filed by the state of Texas against four swing states. And this lawsuit to me is like the crazy of the crazy, but I'm hoping that you can talk us through briefly, what's this lawsuit about? And two questions. First, what does it claim to be about legally? And then what is it really about politically? Yeah, sure. So we've heard a lot from President Trump and those who support him uh, making claims that fraud took place, that some sort of nefarious conduct took place, and that led to his loss in the election. But the people asserting that have put forward no evidence. So this Texas lawsuit that was brought by the the state attorney general there and joined by a host of other uh, Republican state attorneys general, doesn't actually claim that fraud took place. What they're essentially saying is the way that these states adapted for the pandemic, the way that they changed the rules that really broadened access to the polls, which was necessary during a pandemic, was somehow breaking rules uh, that led to an improper election result. And so they are now asking the U.S. Supreme Court to step in and act as a trial court, really, and go through the evidence that they're putting forward to make a ruling that somehow these votes should be thrown out. If it sounds like very thin legal, uh, a very thin legal grounds, then that's because it is. It's really a baseless lawsuit um, that leads us to the politics of this. It seems completely likely to fail. It's doomed. But it's meant to send this political message to Donald Trump and those who support him in order to sort of carry this message and really undermine people's faith in democracy, honestly. They're undermine uh, their confidence that this election was carried out uh, fairly as it was. And so it's quite extraordinary. It puts the U.S. Supreme Court now right in the middle of a political fight, which is exactly where the Supreme Court hates to be. Right. Which is why, which is why they, I think, are so extremely motivated to say this steaming pile of blank, we're going to go ahead and put it over somewhere else, not right here. And so I appreciate that description. So it sounds like other than that, it's a great suit, other than the legal <laughs> issues, the political <laughs> issues. And I I do want to stay with the legal issues for a second, because it seems to me that this is absolutely extraordinary that you would have one state suing other states, saying to the Supreme Court, you have to exercise original jurisdiction, which I think they've exercised, what, 10 to 12 times in the last 20 years, because nobody else can possibly hear this case. 
But then the case deals with allegations, as you said, that are kind of recycled and, in fact, have been heard by other courts. And so we have this initial problem of, I don't think the Supreme Court has jurisdiction. And then we have the second issue of what's Texas doing here? Do they really have standing? And then we have this third issue that you mentioned of the actual substantive legal arguments. And then we have what I find to be this existential issue of so many other states joining. And I'm just having trouble for myself sorting this out. It's not only other states joining, but it's Republicans in elected office supporting this argument. And this is maybe a, a bigger question, but I don't understand what partisan affiliation has to do with walking into a court and just, you know, just putting out arguments that have no legal basis. I mean, is is there any there there whatsoever to this suit? So no, there is no there there. Yes. And look, in in the last five years, uh, you know, covering national politics and watching the way the Republican Party has become really the party of Donald Trump, the party that uh, that its sole mission is to support. Donald Trump, whether it is politically or whether it's just his whims, completely anti-democratic whims like this attack on the election, and they are going to do that to the end. Even seeing that happen, I am surprised at the extent to which there is support for this completely baseless lawsuit. And it would be one thing if it was just a baseless lawsuit. But it really, it attacks a fundamental part of our democracy, our election systems. It's asking the highest court in the land to throw out votes that were cast by citizens as per their constitutional right. That is one of the most extraordinary things that has happened in American history. And as you point out, we are now up to 126 Republicans in Congress um, who are supporting this in court filings. I mean, it really is quite extraordinary. And, you know, if you can break it down, if you're talking about Republican principles, right, you talk about federalism and you talk about states' rights and all these things that we learned are, you know, fundamental parts of what Republicans want. It goes against all of that. It's ask, it, it's some states asking other states, trying to tell other states what to do or to force the Supreme Court to tell them what to do. And meanwhile, a lot of these states who are a part of this action trying to stop these four swing states, uh, stop their votes from counting, they too change their election procedures for the pandemic. Um, so they are saying that they were able to do that, but that these other states were not. I mean, it, it really is, it's really quite shocking. Well, I mean, that's what's so breathtaking. I mean, I feel like how, you know, how many synonyms for breathtaking can I possibly find here? But the fact that the states that are joining themselves have engaged in the same practice, but the only difference here is that those states went for Trump and therefore yeah. uh, the practices are okay. And I noticed that you you said a couple of things that are so, I mean, you said a lot of things are important, but I noted that these two quotes you have, you said, this undermines people's faith in democracy. And then later you said, it attacks a fundamental part of our democracy. And and then you mentioned, and for nothing that has to do with being consistent with a conservative political worldview. This has nothing to do with federalism. In fact, the opposite it has nothing to do with your view on, you know, 
taxes or the environment or criminal justice. And it, it seems to me that we've kind of pulled back the curtain and looked at what's really motivating a lot of elected representatives. And this is separate from the legal questions, and maybe it's not fair, but you're such a smart person. I want to hear from you on this. I mean, how do we move forward in the Biden administration in a world in which over 100 elected lawmakers are joining a baseless suit, where over a dozen states are joining a baseless suit? I mean, do we just pretend like, oh, you know, that part of the play, it didn't really happen. Skip over Act 4. We're going straight to Act 5. And and don't worry about I mean, I really wonder how we move forward from this. Well, I think the short answer is no, you can't ignore it. I think one thing that uh, I hope the folks in the Biden administration understand is the, the, the factors behind this. What is the things that are happening here? And I think one of them is that for a long time, Republicans have known that it is a shrinking party, that fewer and fewer people believe in even those core ideals that we're talking about uh, that were fundamental to Republicans. And after the 2012 election loss of Mitt Romney, if you recall, there was this, you know, sort of moment where the party did a postpartum of that election loss and said, the party needs to grow. The, the Republicans need to find a way to, you know, encourage more uh, Latino Americans to uh, embrace the party, encourage more Black Americans, encourage more women, uh, make it a bigger tent party for its own survival. And then Donald Trump came in 2016 and completely threw that playbook out. And it's the opposite. It's about doubling down and sort of creating this cult-like following among the small numbers of, of, of supporters that you have. And so that creates an election problem. If the electorate is moving away from you, even if you are you know, a, a party that is very homogenous and singularly focused on uh, advancing Trumpism, you're still going to lose elections. And so what do Republicans do? They try to make it harder for the votes of the opposition to count. And I think we're seeing that in ways, including pushing for restrictive voting laws in many states after the Supreme Court invalidated part of the Voting Rights Act. You see, you saw it in the pushback in a lot of states who tried to make it easier to expand um, absentee and mail-in voting during the pandemic because they knew that that would make it easier for more people, including more Democrats, to vote. And now you're seeing this. You're seeing the clearest example of that, which is literally asking the U.S. Supreme Court to throw out millions of validly cast votes because they were cast for the other side. And I think people, Democrats and Republicans, need to be clear-eyed just about uh, how that's happening in doing everything, not just in, in terms of voting reform, but in the policies that they carry out and the way that they, they message to the American people. They really need to let them know that, hey, your vote counts even when there are people trying to keep it from counting just because they will lose their dwindling amount of political power if they don't. Do you think Democrats are doing a decent 
job of that. You said, you know, it's about the policies they're carrying out and how they message this to the American people. If you were in charge of those two things, is there something you would say that they should be doing? It seems to me that in this election, when the presidential candidate who got the most votes in history is Biden and the presidential candidate who got the second most votes in the history of our country is Trump, uh, we're maybe not doing the best job at messaging. I don't think that the Democrats are doing a perfect job at all. I don't even think that the the uh, transition team for President-elect Biden is doing a perfect job in messaging or, or at least signaling that it understands the factors that led to Joe Biden's victory. It was you know, being anti-Trump, the voters who were motivated against Donald Trump was a major part of it. But there are a lot of other things that are happening. This, this economy is not, even at its strongest, was not working for everyone. Racism, institutional, structural racism is in every American system. And we saw it reach a critical point on the issue of policing after the death of George Floyd. But that opened up a window to show how many other ways it is uh, playing a role in financial systems, in health systems, the way that Black and brown folks are disproportionately hit physically by uh, COVID-19. Um, in economics, how Black and brown folks are more likely to be frontline workers. And so that is a reason why so many black and brown voters were motivated to elect Joe Biden. And I think Joe Biden needs to be really responsive to that, despite the fact that there are people within the Democratic Party that are really afraid of that. They think that buying into that and moving forward with that in a really forceful way to address racial justice will backfire on them and scare away some of their white voters. I think that the party really needs to look, really needs to talk to the voters that elected them and really need to talk to those who still didn't come out to vote and try to understand what they need to hear from Democrats to be as strongly supportive of them uh, as they have been. I mean, looking at what happened with the congressional races show how far Democrats still need to go if they really want to grow their party too. So what are some specific things? I mean, you you mentioned this, and I think it's right that one, the Republican Party seems to me to be kind of surviving on smoke, mirrors, and anti-majoritarian institutions, the Senate, the Electoral College, trying to restrict the right to vote. But Democrats really do um, need to do a lot more. And as you mentioned, there's, I think, a really troubling crack line between or fault line between people who believe, I think rightly, that the Democratic Party needs to be much more responsive to everybody who's a part of it and those who feel that that will threaten swing voters and swing states maybe who are a Caucasian. And has Joe Biden taken steps already that you think are positive? What are some concrete things that he can do to say, I'm not just picking a woman of color to be my vice president and then saying, I'm all done here. Right. 
Right. I mean, I, it's still early. We, we still have yes. to see exactly what he's going to do. And the Trump administration made it very difficult for him to even get his transition started. Um, so uh, I, I think that I'm, as, a, as somebody who, who watches politics and writes about it, I'm going to give him some time. And I think Americans should give him some time uh, to see exactly what he's going to do. But I think as he puts his team together and as he listens to the people who he's putting around him, um, to put these policies together, he should be very mindful at the needs of the electorate, the needs of the voter, and and not create a bubble or echo chamber uh, for himself where he may not fully get the full picture. I think that frequently happens with presidents. And I hope that he he is open to listening to others. But I think already you're seeing him move a lot more tentatively when it comes to the issues that have sparked that internal debate among Democrats for things like policing. Yes, he's going to put together a commission of people and they're going to come around the table and they're going to talk about it. Okay, that's all well and good. But there are clear things that he could do and he could push Congress to do. Uh, Do things like um, getting rid of sovereign immunity or or getting rid of um, qualified Qualified immunity immunity. protection for um, federal officers who shoot unarmed people, um, to making it easier to launch investigations uh, through the Department of Justice when those cases take place. There are things that he can start to do that can signal that he's serious about this. The federal level has nothing to do with, quote unquote, defunding police that's done on state and local levels, but he can put out initiatives to show where money uh, can be transferred in places like um, substance abuse treatments, in places like creating councils that would respond to things like domestic incidents or, or, or incidents involving people who are distressed but not dangerous to lower the involvement of police. But he's starting much more slowly than that. He's starting with a commission, which is fine. But I think that can take a lot of the momentum away that has been built by people who are literally crying out for justice in the streets over the spring and summer of this year. Um, There are other things like eliminating student loan debt, which also is not just an economic issue. It's a it has racial issues, too, because black and brown folks are less likely to have the um, the wealth in their households passed on through their families to pay for things like higher education than white folks are. Um, He is moving slowly. He has promised to eliminate, I believe it's $10,000 for some qualifying students, but he can go bigger than that. Those are issues that he can really dig into, things that have been talked about now for years and that have the support of the people who have supported him. But we'll have to see just how far he goes with that or if he sets up an administration that looks a lot like the Obama administration that had for sure had some advances on these issues, but didn't go far enough because it left us with many of the problems that we have right now. Yeah. I just remember from the outside looking at the Obama administration and thinking, please fill all the judicial vacancies, please fill all the judicial vacancies. And I think uh, you know, obviously that didn't happen, and President Trump has been enormously efficient at that. And um, well, it couldn't happen. It well, couldn't. right, McConnell made sure that he could not fill all the judicial vacancies, including one on the Supreme Court. Well, this uh, there were so many parts of what you just said that I wanted to pick up on, but I think this this probably does bring us to another area of your expertise, which is the Supreme Court, and it's something that 
I know you think about a lot. And it's kind of the same question, which is where do we go when we just had a situation where we had a Supreme Court justice, Antonin Scalia, who passed away in February of an election year, and Mitch McConnell held that seat open, as he did with many lower court nominations, as you just mentioned. And the idea was because we're in election year. And then we have Justice Ginsburg, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, pass away in September, not of an election year, but in an election. People already had their ballots and were sending in their ballots. And uh, there was a hearing. And of course, Justice Barrett was confirmed. And this is on the heels of uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh's bruising, let's say euphemistically, confirmation hearing. And it does make me concerned about uh, the credibility of the Supreme Court. And I want to ask you about reforms and I want to ask you about more specifics. But first, I want to just ask you generally as, as a court watcher, are you worried about people continuing to respect the Supreme Court, viewing it as a legitimate court, um, adhering to its precedent, or am I going too far to say there's an existential issue here? Well, the Supreme Court is far more conservative than it was four years ago. It was almost evenly split, but leaning conservative four years ago. Now, with uh, the appointments and, and certainly with the appointment of Justice Barrett, it is decisively conservative. Um, it's basically two-thirds to one-third conservative now. And so those are the kinds of decisions that are going to come down. Um, you still have Chief Justice John Roberts at the helm. He's somebody who's very uh, aware and very concerned about and protective of the Supreme Court's reputation, how it's viewed uh, by the public, how it's viewed, how it will be viewed by history. Um, but his power has dwindled now because the court has shifted possibly further to the right than even he is on the court. I'm not saying it that he is not a staunch conservative. He is. But he has fewer levers now to use in really hot button issues to prevent the Supreme Court from looking politicized. So if you're asking, do you think that Roe v. Wade is in trouble? My opinion is yes. Um, I am also... I think that the court is going to do little to make it easier to reform, to protect voting rights. I think that uh, affirmative action is on its deathbed. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of decisions that are very, very conservative. Now, one thing that I wonder is based on what the court does with how the court dispenses of this election challenge. I have no doubt that it's going to lose, but there's a way um, that they could, he could, they could do it in a way that really underscores the importance of democracy, or they can just sort of slap it down and not say much about it. Yeah, I did want to kind of loop back to, we started with this big Texas case. And of course, again, we're recording when we don't know, we know what the outcome's going to be, but we don't know how you get there. And I was going to ask you, should it be like the Pennsylvania case where the court said in basically 34 minutes, one line, no. Or should they spend a little more time explaining why what we just said, you know, it's stunning, it's breathtaking, it's absurd. Should they spend a little more time on this one? I think the latter. Absolutely. I think what is at stake is too big. 
democracy and faith in democracy is at stake. And this gives someone like John Roberts, uh, who is very talented with a pen, an opportunity. It doesn't have to be that long, but just to underscore that principle and the importance of protecting democracy. He can dismiss substantively with the case itself in a line or two, but he should spend a few more really underscoring that because regardless of what people think of the U.S. Supreme Court, and some people have lost faith in it, others have not. Others still see that as an important institution. And I think if they speak, even if it's met with scorn and ire from President Trump's Twitter account, that it's important and they need to make that statement. But at the same time, I think that that statement, if the court makes it, should not give people this idea that the court is going to just very carefully call balls and strikes in all of the cases that are coming. This is a conservative court with conservative views on how things are decided and with justices who have been pretty vocal uh, in their views about things like abortion. And so they should be prepared for that to happen in the years ahead too. Do you think that this is a legally conservative court in a consistent and intellectually honest way? Or do you think this is going to be a court where they come out with decisions that favor Republicans that are more politically conservative? You know, we we just talked about the Texas case and states' rights and federalism. Are we going to see this court making decisions, you think, where they consistently adhere to a conservative legal worldview, which sometimes leads to a Republican political win and sometimes can lead to a Democratic political win? Or in your view, are we in a politicians in robes era here? I think it could be both. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll have to see. I think it can change over time. I think um, it can depend in cases on which justice is writing the opinion. Um, I think some of them can be more political and others could be more conservative in their jurisprudence. And I think it can change. I mean, I think a great example um, is Justice Antonin Scalia, who, you know, when I was in law school and I would read his opinions, I would usually disagree with them unless, except in the cases of Fourth Amendment, which I think where I think he was exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. But I even in disagreeing with him, I could appreciate the reasoning and I understood why he was coming to his decisions. I think toward the end of his tenure on the court, he was much more openly political. Um, he was much more uh, a, a, a Republican in a robe, if you will. So I think that it can change over time. And, and then you have other justices who change even in their jurisprudence over time. So I think we'll have to see, but I think we're starting off at a very conservative place in terms of jurisprudence. Um, and I think that the justices themselves are certainly not immune from their own political views as well. Who do you think is, I have my guess, but who do you think is the most political or the two most political of the bunch? Oh, you're making me, you want me to name names here. Well, so it's, can I it's just us. Nobody's listening. I mean, so you, you can also say we have to wait and see, which is totally fair. No, I think there are some that are more political. Can I start with the one that I think might, we might look to? to maybe try to tamp that down and find more consensus building, I would look to Justice Elena Kagan. Yes, yes. I think she is someone who um, 
is also aware of the court and its place in history and its and its reputation um, in the country, and that she will look to find places if there is some sort of narrow consensus that that can be found in some of the hot button cases. She will be at the center of those efforts to do that. Um, the justices who I think will not be at the center of those efforts to do that would be a Samuel Alito. Uh, or Clarence Thomas on one side, and perhaps, depending on the issue, a Sonia Sotomayor on the other. Um, But I do think that most of the justices, most, not all, um, quite often, if there is a way to get out of a hot-button case without really upending law uh, in a way that's going to be seen as highly political, whether it is or not, they're going to find, I think they're going to continue to try to find that way. And certainly while uh, Chief Justice Roberts is at the helm, I I would, some things, I don't think that will happen like affirmative action. I think they can't wait to get rid of it. But um, in other areas, I think they will try to move slowly, even if they are moving to the right. I think there is going to be some Kagan-Roberts alliance where they say, Let's try and hold this place together and Mm -hmm. let's try and make this something that people can uh, try and be proud of and respect. And it seems to me that maybe those are the two justices, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Elena Kagan, who are most excited not to get a big post-election litigation case. I mean, of course, they do have this Texas case, but there's really no there there to it. They don't have to weigh in. But then again, maybe it's Justice Barrett who doesn't want to be in the position of having to make a decision that looks like either she's engaging in a quid pro quo, you know, President Trump says, here's your job, and she says, thank you, here's your job, or it looks like she's, quote unquote, a traitor because people don't understand exactly what justices do, and it's not hand people political victories. But I know you've talked about this post-election litigation a lot. For me, you know, people say, oh, are you going to teach this in election law? And the answer is not really, because there aren't big election questions. This is more a question of professional responsibility and ethics, if anything. Right. Um, if there's one thing that you wish you could tell people about the post-election litigation, and I know there have been now 57 cases that have been decided, I think. It, if, mm. Is there one takeaway that you wish people had from the post-election litigation? That it was about politics and not facts as applied to the law. That's what the Supreme Court deals with, um, legal principles and applying the facts of a certain situation to those legal principles and ruling based on that law, the Constitution or federal law, or deciding that the existing federal law doesn't uh, is inconsistent with the Constitution and that precedent should be changed. None of that is going on here. This is a political fight that really had no place in the courts. Um, And it's one thing for political actors to act in an anti-democratic way. That's bad enough. But it's another thing for them to try to drag the court into it and thus potentially harm the reputation of the court too. And that's really what's happening here. I mean, one thing that the board of the Boston Globe called for is for the attorneys that are bringing these cases to be disciplined because this goes against the oath that lawyers take uh, to support and defend the constitution. It's really, it's a shame. It is. um, 
as I said, I think an exercise in what not to do when it comes to ethical lawyering and professional responsibility. And exactly as you said, I also think that these are just bad political arguments masquerading as legal filings. Um, and, and you can see that. I think as of the time we're recording, President Trump has won one fairly insignificant case and he's lost 56. Um, that that type of track record is not something that you would typically be accustomed to. And this brings me a little bit into one other nagging question that I want to ask you before I think I need to let you go, which is the curious case of Attorney General Bill Barr. And mm. And I know that you think a lot about the rule of law. And again, this idea to me that that the question of whether or not we should support it simply shouldn't be a proxy for partisan affiliation. But here we are. And uh, Bill Barr was the attorney general previously. He served under the first President Bush. And a lot of people like me mistakenly thought, oh, now we have an adult in the room when he became the attorney general after Jeff Sessions. And it seems to me now, instead, what we had is somebody who was so enormously efficient and effective for President Trump as a personal attorney, but in no way, well, I should say in very few ways, served the American public. And I'm wondering if you have any insight, I mean, just from the absolute get-go of the summary that wasn't a summary of the Mueller report, um, you know, to right. let's investigate the 2016 investigators. If you have any right. insight into what happened here, what what was going on with the attorney general? Right. To let's intervene uh, in uh, lawsuits involving Donald Trump that have nothing to do with the Justice Department, right. like the defamation suit with E. Jean Carroll. Yes. Um, so the only explanation that I can get, and I don't know uh, Attorney General Barr personally, um, but he saw when he took this job with the Trump administration, he saw what had gone down between Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions, who was one of the earliest and most staunch supporters of Donald Trump's 2016 election, um, who made the uh, inexcusable mistake, according to Donald Trump, of not uh, trying to not putting a stop to the Mueller investigation and recusing himself. Um, and for that, he could never be forgiven, despite the fact that Jeff Sessions in, implemented Donald Trump policy at the DOJ, including uh, immigration policy, um, in a way that nobody else probably could. Um, he was a soldier in Trump world, but he committed that discretion. And so for that, he had to go. Bill Barr saw that. Bill Barr knew what he needed to do for that job if he were to take it, and he took it. So all that says to me is that he was more supportive of Donald Trump's worldview uh, than anybody thought before. And he was perfectly happy to use the levers of the Justice Department to make Donald Trump happy, right up to claiming that there was election fraud, some sort of widespread election fraud that needed to be prosecuted by the DOJ, uh, which at the end he decided not to do. And that is what made Donald Trump turn on him too. That's the only explanation for this because legally and historically, there is no basis for the actions that we mentioned um, that the attorney general has taken in his tenure. 
I mean, right down to just optics. I mean, he was there when the Lafayette Square was cleared by federal law enforcement so that Donald Trump could walk across the street for the Bible photo op. I mean, there's just really no other explanation than he is a true believer in Trumpism. Well, uh, thank you for putting the pit back in my stomach. I, I appreciate that. Let me ask you this. Do you have a few people who you would like to see take that job in the Biden administration? You know, I don't have individuals that I think that I would root for over another, but I really would like to see. I think the single, I can't can't say definitively the single most troubling thing because there were so many troubling things, but one of the most troubling things I heard come out of Attorney General Bill Barr's mouth was the assertion that there is no systemic racism in policing in America when Justice Department's own data, FBI's own data clearly shows that Black Americans are four to six times more likely to be killed unarmed by police than white Americans. So I would like somebody who comes into the door with a better understanding of that who comes in the door with a better understanding of the need uh, to secure the vote for all Americans um, and who just understands the importance of the rule of law. I think those are things that everybody should be behind regardless of party, but I certainly hope that the attorney general who follows Bill Barr believes in those things. So in a truly depressing 2020 uh, analysis, what you want out of the attorney general is someone who uh, acknowledges reality and believes in the legal system. And I, 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 can't, I can't argue with that now. Um, that's all. That's, a, that's, that's all. all. That's, all, that's all we want. Now, I would like one more thing, which is, as listeners of this podcast know, we end the podcast with the same three questions for all of our guests. And these will have... I think, nothing to do with Bill Barr, the Supreme Court, but one never knows. And so the first question is, which famous person, dead or alive, would you want to invite to a dinner party and why? Oprah Winfrey. I just think that she is my, uh, you know, she not only just in what she has done as a Black woman who was from, you know, impoverished beginnings Uh, to really excel in her career. She is someone who has such great emotional intelligence, which is why she was able to soar to the heights that she did with her television show and her other endeavors. But I just think she is such an insightful person. And I think having a conversation with her would be really life-changing in a lot of ways. Another life change, you're going to be stranded on a desert island and you can bring one meal. What is it? Fettuccine Alfredo with shrimp. We'll never dine together thanks to my shellfish allergy. And number three, (laughs) you get one superpower for one hour. What is it? Oh, it would be the ability to see the humanity in every human, regardless of their words and actions. That is a lovely note to end on. I have had a wonderful time talking with you. Kimberly, thank you for passing judgment with us. 
Thank you. This was a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You can find Kimberly on Twitter, again, at Kimberly E. Atkins. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod. Thank you so much to the listeners. We appreciate your support and for being with us for these conversations. We wish we could have them with you and we will see you next time.